The parables of Jesus are among the most popular elements of the Bible. But what are the deeper stories behind them, and how do they relate to the modern day? Welcome to the Parables podcast series, produced by the Archdiocese of Brisbane. In this seven-part series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge takes us deeper into these stories. Thank you for joining us for the Parables Podcasts. In this podcast, we continue our exploration of the mysterious and endlessly fascinating world of the parables of Jesus, keeping in mind that these parables are among the most distinctive features of his teaching style. It's not that other teachers or rabbis didn't use parables. They did. But Jesus uses them in a very particular way, is what I've been saying. And he uses them as kind of narrative metaphors, metaphors in little stories that are intended to subvert conventional perceptions of the kingdom of God in order to bring to birth new and brilliant perceptions and experiences of the kingdom of God. That The kingdom of God is right at the heart of the proclamation that Jesus not only makes, but that Jesus is. The basileia tu theou is the Greek expression in the New Testament. So, so these parables take us to the heart not only of the preaching of Jesus, his message, but to the heart of who Jesus is and, and, and what Jesus is in the great plan of God, the God who is king and who, whose kingdom comes in, in the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. The parable that we want to read today is taken from the Gospel of Matthew. So many of the great parables of Jesus come to us from the Gospel of Luke, as we've seen already in these podcasts, because great parables like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son that we've looked at and explored together are found only in the Gospel of Luke. The parable that we turn to today is found only in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the parable found in chapter 20, verses 1 to 16 of the Gospel of Matthew. And given how classic it is as a parable of Jesus, it intrigues me that it doesn't find its way into either Mark or Luke, but this is the mystery of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, whom we call the synoptics, and how they came to be put together. But this great parable of the labourers in the vineyard is found only in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 20. So you may, in fact, if you're in a, a situation where you can do this, you may want to open your Bible at Matthew chapter 20 and follow through in the text. If not, you can listen to me. Now, it's always important to ask about where this parable comes in the gospel uh, and, and more particularly what precedes it. Now, in the gospel of Matthew, before the parable of the labourers in the vineyard, we get the story of the rich young man, which is... Uh, Again, a, a crucial story where he asks Jesus, as you remember, what must I do to inherit eternal life, which was a thoroughly valid question to a teacher or rabbi. Jesus said, you know the commandments, follow the way of the commandments of God, and you will experience eternal life here and now and in the life to come. The man then says, I have done all this from my youth. What more do I need to do? And then the unforgettable words of Jesus Sell what you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And the man can't enter the love that is calling him and goes away sad. And Jesus then says how hard it is for the rich 
to enter the kingdom of God. At which point Peter says, what about us? And this is the crucial prelude to the parable we're about to hear. What about us? We have given up so much to follow you. What is our reward going to be? So that Peter, his question, is inhabiting the logic and the law of the market. We've given up stuff for you to follow you. What are we going to get in return? And Jesus puts a bomb under that kind of logic that's contained in Peter's question. Uh, he says, uh, you will receive plenty in this life and even more in the life to come. And his punchline in replying to Peter is, the first will be last and the last will be first. And you'll find that that's also the punchline of this parable that we're about to explore. The first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, the kingdom of God and its logic turn the world as we know it on its head. So that the kind of logic implied by Peter's question, what about us, what are we going to get, is not the logic that will take you into the experience of the kingdom of God. So Peter then is being called into, and the other disciples obviously, being called into a new world as Jesus begins to tell the parable. Now I've said already in an earlier podcast that Jesus' parables always begin in the world that we know, the ordinary, everyday human world. And this parable is no exception. Jesus doesn't take us into some kind of phantasmagoric other world. We're set immediately in a world that we know. And although he speaks long ago, in many ways in a cultural setting that is alien to us, very often there's something strangely familiar and recognisable, even for us now, all these years later, in the world that Jesus evokes. Now, first of all, you've got the day labourers. And this is still the case in the Middle East. I can remember in the, the times when I've lived in Jerusalem, I've had a couple of stints there over the years. And if you go out early in the morning, you will see day labourers lined up looking for someone to hire them. Uh, in, in Israel these days, it's usually Palestinians who are looking to be hired to, to do some kind of work. They're obviously those who are poorer rather than richer. In the world that Jesus knew, they would have been people who had no access to land uh, and therefore the only thing they had to sell, the only source of wealth in their life was their labour. So they go out early and they line up and they wait for the landowner to come and hire them for the day. Now, obviously, too, in this parable, it's vintage time. In other words, it's time for the grapes to be picked. And we, at least in this country now, in Australia, we know enough about what the vintage means. We have vineyards all over the place, so we know something of the vintage and it involves a lot of hard work from a lot of people in a short time. You've got to get the grapes off the vine. So there would have been plenty of work available at the vintage time and there would have been plenty of men lined up waiting to be hired to help with the vintage. Then we're told the landowner himself goes out. Now, this is strange. It's the first strange little touch 
in the parable because some verses later, in fact in verse 8, we're told that he has a manager and it's the manager who hands out the wages. Now the, quest, the obvious question is, why didn't the manager go and do the hiring? Why does the landowner himself go out to do the hiring? And this, this is a, this beginning to look at the strangeness of the kingdom of God. Why does God himself come among us in the person of Jesus? Doesn't just send a manager or a representative, but we say that Jesus is God with us. So this is like the landowner himself going out to do the hiring and not sending the manager to do the contractual work, to, to hire the, the men to help in the vineyard. So that's the first strange touch in the parable, that the landowner himself and not the manager, whom we meet later, goes out to meet with the workers and hire them for the day. Clearly, he chooses some of them. Now, eventually, towards the end of the day, he will hire all of them, but he doesn't go out immediately and say, I want you all to come into the vineyard because there's heaps of work to be done. That might have been more conventionally logical. But he hires some early in the day, which would have been about 6am. The others have to wait. And in fact, we're told, as the story unfolds, that the landowner himself, once again, returns three times and chooses more of the group of those waiting each time. And by the end of the day, he has chosen everybody. The whole group has come into the vineyard to work. So he chooses everyone eventually, but in stages. And again, this is saying something about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, in fact, is for everybody, not just for some. There's nothing exclusive about it. But the way in which God chooses doesn't work in the same way for everybody. There's a different rhythm, a different sense of timing from person to person. But the kingdom of God is for everyone because all the workers eventually end up in the vineyard picking grapes. So the kingdom of God, it would seem, is for all. Now this was, again, radical stuff in a Jewish world that was based upon a sense of separation between Jew and Gentile, for instance. That was the fundamental separation that undergirded the religious cosmos of Judaism at the time, and still does in many ways. So here you have Jesus telling a story that subverts that sense that the kingdom of God is for some, but not for others. It is for everybody. It's not based upon a sense of separation. It's a different religious cosmos a different human world. It is for everyone, but for everyone in God's own time and in God's own way. Now, once we've got everyone in the vineyard and the day's work is done, the parable, which begins as something so ordinary, turns genuinely strange. The extraordinary is born at the heart of the ordinary because... The landowner, through his manager this time, says that those who have worked for one hour at the end of the day are going to get the same wage 
that all the others, including those who, who've worked the whole day, are getting. Now, the landowner would have contracted to pay those first hired workers something like one denarius. Now, one denarius was a day's salary for a Roman soldier. So it wasn't bad pay at all. And those men who would have been hired first at 6am and had worked right through the day, when they were hired for one denarius, they would have been delighted with the deal. They're not so happy at the end of the day when those who've worked only one hour are also paid one denarius. But what's at work here is not the logic of the market, but the logic of the kingdom. Uh, the protest that the first hired workers make, it, it makes absolute sense. Again, it's the logic of this world, the logic of the market. We've worked longer. If you pay them one denarius, we should be getting ten denarii or five denarii, even though we agreed happily to work the whole day for one denarius. But, but again, the, the logic of the kingdom works according to a different law. All receive the same. Now, why is the question that the parable poses? And the answer, put very simply, is that within the kingdom of God and its logic, waiting is work. The men who have stood around are paid for waiting. Why? Because waiting is work in the kingdom of God. The landowner goes out and says to them, the, the men who are hired at the end of the day, why have you been standing around idle all day? And the answer they give is obvious, because no one's hired us. In other words, these men are powerless until someone comes eventually to hire them. All they can do is wait, but the waiting itself is a work, is the work, and it's for that that they are paid. Now, clearly they are prepared to keep waiting. They didn't just drift off and go home and, and, and enter a kind of world of hopelessness, give up all hope that they would be hired. They were prepared to stand around all day in the heat, I might add, in the belief that they would or at least might be hired. In other words, there's a quality of hope in them standing around idle all day. In a sense, they're not idle because what motivates them to, to keep waiting there is a quality of hope. In other words, that the landowner will come and hire them, or at least might. And it's highly likely that that kind of hope that motivates them would have been born of a kind of remembrance of how this landowner had behaved in the past. Now, th this again takes us to the very heart of the scripture because the theme of waiting for God or waiting on God pervades the Bible from first page to last. I'd need a very long time to stand here and go through all the texts in the scripture that talk about waiting for God. It's from Genesis 
to the apocalypse. And you see it quite dramatically in the Psalms, you know, where the cry goes up, how long, O Lord? How long will we have to wait for you? Uh, and and um, encouragement, urging to, to wait for God because God doesn't always work in our way, according to our rhythms, meet our expectations. God has God's own time, God's own rhythm, and so on. And the Bible is absolutely full of that. So waiting for God implies the need for a kind of patience. And again, you see that in, the, in these workers who wait all day. There's a, there's a kind of patience. It's a patience of which Pope Francis often speaks. In many ways, Pope Francis seems to be a man with fire in the belly. He's got a lot to do in a short time. I mean, he's an old man. But he's got fire in the belly, and for all that he speaks of the need to act and all that he's doing in the life of the church, he says that patience is terribly important, that capacity to wait for God in God's own time to act and also to set in motion processes rather than uh, expecting everything to happen here and now, as we tend to do in this culture. We're a culture of, of the instant, instant everything, instant coffee, instant you name it. That's not the way that God works. If you enter the kingdom of God and are attuned to the way in which God works, then you need a kind of holy patience. And it's, it's not a passivity. It does have fire in the belly, but it's driven by the belief that God will speak or act in God's own time. And it's that belief which becomes the womb of hope. And in a sense, this parable is not just about the kingdom of God, but our response to it and the need for that response to be a genuine and powerful and active hope that is driven by a belief that God will speak and God will act in God's own time and which is fed by the sense that that's the way God has shown to be himself to be in the past. God has always been reliable, but not always in accord with our expectations, in accord with our logic. So, so hope is at the heart of, of what this parable is seeking to bring to birth. Waiting for God, showing forth a holy patience, that is, is powered by belief that God will in fact act or speak when God is ready and that that belief in turn generates that, that powerful and active force that we call hope. Now, Christianity in many ways is what they call an eschatology. In a way, for instance, that Judaism is not. Now, it's a big word that comes from the Greek, eschatology. What, what it means is that Christianity is, is a process always moving towards um, a fullness. A fullness. Some sense of climax. And we Christians talk about the return of Christ, the second coming. We say it when we gather for the Eucharist. We look forward to the second coming of Christ. Uh, that, that, that climax of history and the end of time and space when God will be all in all. Now, we're caught in a tension, they say. 
that, that Christ has come already. Christ has died and risen from the dead, but the fullness has not yet arrived. Christ hasn't yet returned. In other words, we're caught in between promise and fulfilment. And that kind of language of promise and fulfilment is so utterly typical of the New Testament, but, but not of Judaism. That is less of an eschatology, it's more a religion of this world than of the world to come that lies beyond the climax of history. Christianity, therefore, is driven by a particular kind of hope. In many ways, it is a hope that's not native to this planet. It has to come from elsewhere, and we say it comes from God. But it's a hope born of remembrance. We always look forward to that climax of history. But, but we do so in looking back. Why? Because we look at the way God has spoken and acted in the past, and that in turn generates a confidence, a real hope, that that's the way God will be faithful in the future. And keeping in mind that, that remembrance has a particular power in the whole of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and that forgetting is a kind of sin, is one of the key words for sin, in fact, in the Old Testament. Why? Because if you forget, you will, uh, your hope will die. A French philosopher has, has said that God is not only être, être in French is the, the verb to be, God is not only être, but also, and more particularly, peut-être, which is the French word for perhaps, but it means is able to be. In other words, what he's saying is that God is not only being but also possibility, not only being but becoming. God is not only behind us but ahead of us. And the vision of God, therefore, that Jesus is seeking to bring to birth in this parable, in fact, is a vision of possibility. And the whole of Scripture is seeking to expand our vision of possibility endlessly. And, in fact, we inhabit a culture where the vision of possibility in the lives of many people tends to shrink, grows smaller and smaller and smaller, the horizon of possibility, and as it does, a kind of deep, deep boredom can take hold. It's crazy that people in this culture could be so bored when they have so much to do, they live in comfortable houses, they drive big cars, they've got too much to eat and drink, and so on it goes, all forms of entertainment, and yet still they are bored. Why? Because the the vision or horizon of possibility shrinks. The world grows smaller and no matter what you've got or what you do, you still feel bored. And at an extreme point, if the vision of possibility or hope, to call it that, shrinks to a tiny point, the only way out may seem to be suicide. And the shrinking horizon of hope or vision of possibility in our culture may well be one of the key factors in the suicide rate. This is a delicate theme, but it touches upon the, kind, the, the, the key concerns of this parable, which seeks to open the vision of possibility, to create a sense, therefore, of hope, and, and far from boredom, a sense of the joy of the gospel, again, to echo the, the words of Pope Francis. Prayer, too, understood in these terms, is waiting for God. Because Christian prayer, before ever it's a speaking to God, a babbling, is a listening to God in the belief that God will speak or communicate in God's own way and God's own time. But you have to wait. 
Again, like those workers waiting for the landowner to come out. If you're not prepared to wait, if you say there's nothing or no one there, or I'm not going to be hired and drift off home or into a world of hopelessness, prayer, of course, comes to nothing. It shrinks and eventually dies. So that the whole of Christian life is gathered up under the heading of waiting. That's why, again, this parable is not just about some part of Christian life. In a sense, it's about Christianity and the whole of Christian life and what it means to be a disciple. And, and I repeat that it's profoundly countercultural because waiting is not one of the things that this culture that I know and of which I'm a product is, um, finds easy at all. So, so we are talking about the kingdom of God as something that is profoundly countercultural. The parable, like all of the parables of Jesus, is open-ended. In other words, it looks to our decision. You're going to wait in the belief that you will be hired or you're going to drift off home or into a world of hopelessness. You're going to allow the vision of possibility, the horizon to expand more and more and more or are you going to allow it to shrink and shrink and shrink till there's nothing there and hope dies? Do you accept the logic of this world? Or do you accept the logic of the kingdom of God as Jesus puts it before us? I mean, these are the questions that we are left with, all of us, uh, if, we, if we read or listen to this great parable. So do we accept or not? This is the question Jesus puts to Peter and the disciples, but also to us. Do we accept the truth of what Jesus now says for the second time to Peter and the disciples? that the first will be last and the last first. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parables podcast series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the Archdiocese of Brisbane on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube or subscribe for more podcasts on iTunes or Spotify.